All right. I'm Nick Verity. Welcome to the Operations Mastery Podcast. I'm here with Steve Garwood. He is the COO of Trajus, a company that owns a few different companies in the cabinetry and multifamily uh, interior design and renovation space. And Steve impressively has led a turnaround and a few other things at the business in the last few years. So we're very grateful to have him on today. Good morning. Steve, can you tell us real quick, Trajus, their core services and, and when you joined the company? Joined the company uh, March of 2021. Uh, products are uh, multifamily interior cabinetry, meaning uh, cabinets for kitchen and bathrooms, uh, as well as countertops, uh, bath surrounds, those kinds of things. Um, we also have another company that uh, does single family as well, same type of products and stone countertops. Amazing. And is this like for new construction or renovation or both? All of the above. Okay. And how big were they when you came in? Uh, when I joined, we were doing about 600,000 cabinets a year. Wow. And in 2023, we did 928,000 cabinets. Wow. So within a year and a half of joining. You grew percentish. Yeah, 25%. That's amazing. And I know that with growth, uh, that doesn't necessarily mean more profit ability. Can you talk a little bit about where the company was when you came in and, and where they are today? Not in terms of numbers, but in terms of like um, strategies and what was burning, you know, mm -hmm. at the time and what you fixed. Sure. Yeah. Sure. The, uh, the, the burning uh, uh, platform, if you will, when I joined was primarily delivery. Second layer in the lead cost. Uh, we were massively past due, you know, months past due. Uh, when, when you look at time frame as far as from a customer perspective, as well as our costs were just you know, killing us. We weren't uh, very profitable at the time. Um, so when we, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, um, so delivery is like they order the cabinetry and then they, they just don't receive it in time. Right. And, and uh, the, the order cycle time from a customer perspective is, you know, dealing primarily with new construction. So the cabinets are ordered months ahead. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then everything has to be timed based on the progress of the building. So it's, it's really detrimental to our customer if they're ready for the cabinets, they put in the drywall, et cetera, et cetera, and no cabinets because it will hold up all the other trades. You know, they can't come in and finish until the cabinets get in, et cetera. So the plumbers can't do it do their job. Yeah. So it's and very impactful. Huge. And obviously the company knew that and I'm sure they tried to fix it. What, what did you find helped increase delivery speeds? Well, a couple of things. First thing is uh, what I would call rough cut capacity planning. There wasn't really a planning methodology. We put that mm -hmm. in place so that we understood what was due when quickly uh, mm -hmm. and, and where we were with regard to that. Uh, but most importantly, switching over from a batch operation to a flow operation. Uh, we were literally, um, if, you, if you look at, for instance, the frameless, there were four beam saws cutting all kinds of parts. They were just cutting parts. From a beam standpoint, beam saw standpoint, they're very efficient. Unfortunately, they aren't cutting parts for the same order at the same time. They're doing that today. So that today we're literally producing the different pieces on different saws, and then they flow down through there are specific value streams and wind up right up at the assembly line. Before it was basically the middle of the plant was, was a lot of parts and someone would go around picking parts to try to put an order together. But if I'm cutting different orders on different saws, then they're waiting on parts, if you will, and, and mm -hmm. can't run. We were literally running 10, 12 hours a day, uh, six days a week, 
and couldn't make uh, 2,000 cabinets a day. Today, we're running 2,000. We've been up as high as 2,200, and we're doing it in one shift. Wow. So quick question. Where did you learn the planning framework in your career and then how to like recognize bottlenecks like that and implement yeah. changes at the plant? Like yeah. Well, from a planning standpoint, you know, the rough tech capacity plan early in my career, I was fortunate enough to work with somebody that was steeped in Apex. It's a, it's a very basic functional tool. Even the format is, is prescribed. You can use tons or dollars or whatever, but once you know the, um, the concept and the philosophy of level loading, Junka, right? Uh, going back to, to Toyota, then you just continue to work to that. Um, but with regard to you know, kind of knowing uh, what to go after, this is my sixth turnaround. So oh. I've been through another, and, and I was fortunate that I was able to work with Danaher and with uh, Cranko, um, where you know, Lean was a core competency, if, if, if to put it mildly. Uh, and was fortunate to be trained uh, by Shakira Shakir Macau uh, in Japan a couple of times and, and a number of transformational events here in the United States and picked up those tools about how to figure out how to lay out a facility uh, so that it flows. Wow. And so, sorry, if you could just unpack for me the back to the parts thing at the plant level. The the specific bottleneck was was, can you remind me of that again? Well, yeah, primarily it was the saws, right? This is the first operation. If you don't cut it, the rest can't happen, right? Right. So if the saws aren't cutting in coordination and in complete orders as opposed to just parts, uh, then the rest of the factory really can't be efficient because you can't get the pieces together to make the cabinet. You have a lot of pieces for a lot of different cabinets, but not for the right cabinets. Mm -hmm. Cabinets are in different sizes, shapes. We have 30 different colors, right? So it could be the right shape, but it's the wrong color for a particular order. And we literally produce everything uh, per order, meaning it's specific to a customer. We don't build anything stock. We don't have a warehouse. Uh, when I joined, our processing time was about four days from the time we cut it on the saw to the time it was on the dock. And today it's four hours. Wow. <laughs> That's. But it's because we're producing simultaneously all of the components for the order as opposed to worrying about strictly say OEE, right? A lot of folks get concerned about OBE, how, how much am I using this asset, but producing things I don't need yet doesn't help with regard to making the product flow. So that, I'll give up a little bit of time on, on the saw uh, if I need to from an OE perspective in order to make the rest of the plant uh, work well. That, that's remarkable. I read and um, I'm not sure if you've read the goal, the book. I have, I have. Yeah, you remind me of the consultant. In the book. <laughs> but yeah, he mentioned people are so obsessed with the utilization rates of the machines and and right. that kind of stuff and like the people doing work, but they should be worried about um, you know, the critical path, what part is needed right. to do another thing. So no one nothing's waiting on another and stuff like that. Yeah, typically the financial guys don't like me because <laughs> <laughs> they look at it as a uh, point utilization of the asset, but I look at it more from I've got a customer standing on my dock with money in his hand. <laughs> he's not going to pay me in, until I give him something of value, right? Or I give him his cabinet. The fact that I've made all the parts, he, he really doesn't care. That, totally. I appreciate that, but, but I don't have what I want. <laughs> and and um, the, the tail order effects of that are super happy customers, more likely to order, more likely to refer. Mm -hmm. There's other benefits that I'm sure uh, Trey just has started to see, right? Of, of oh, this. Sure. From a, from a 
you know, hours per cabinet. Uh, we took it to about half or actually less than that now wow. of what it was just two years ago. So productivity has wow. been huge. And, you know, you can do the math. It's millions of dollars of profitability that we were eating up in overtime and, and second shift that we don't need today. Incredible. Amazing. Um, looking back at your other turnarounds in your career, what were the common threads between them that you've been able to solve? Well, actually, I, I think from an approach standpoint, it's to me all about people and process. Mm. I, I've worked in a variety of industries, uh, rubber, heavy machinery, uh, light machinery, electronics. Uh, this is my first foray into wood. And, and quite frankly, there was a lot of pushback about, well, you don't know anything about cabinets. But I didn't know anything about rubber <laughs> when I when I turned that business or helped turn that business around. And it's about focusing on the people and process. And what do I mean by people and process? Well, people's respect for people. Everybody gets treated with respect, even the guy that's, you know, kind of a pain in, in your side or a thorn. He gets, gets treated with respect. But it's also getting the right players in the right positions. Uh, I don't know how many times I've come into a business where you've got somebody who's an incredibly talented leader and you've got them working on the line or you've got somebody on the line that, uh, that is incredibly talented and something they can do in maintenance. They've got the technical ability, but we're not taking advantage of it. or even in the management uh, roles, but getting the right people in the right places. And by process, I mean, we have to have good processes in place. If we uh, give our folks the right tools and the right process, they'll do a good job. 99.9% .9 of the people will do a good job. Deming would tell you it's not about, the people, it's about management and the decisions that management is making. Um, so we have to give them a good process and then we have to have process discipline. We've got to follow that same recipe again and again and again. And then don't be afraid to change or, or challenge the status quo. You know, in, in the rubber business, for instance, it was all about huge batch ovens and huge presses and, and huge uh, molds because in the early days of the industry, they cost so much. But today, things are with technology that's available. You can have a much smaller press, a much smaller mold, and you can produce much closer to a single piece flow. That wasn't the case 50 years ago. That is absolutely golden. I think it's easier said than done, getting the right people in the right seats. Like, Do you think some of that is innate because you have high like emotional intelligence? Or do you follow a process to figure out who should be where? How are you able to spot that? Well, some of it is, is just talking to folks, right? And, and some of it is, is teaching and coaching their leaders. I like to think of myself more as a teacher and a coach uh, than anything else and teaching them how to look for those kinds of traits. Uh, some of them you can test for, certainly. Um, I haven't done a lot of formal testing, but just getting to know your folks. And, and you can do that in a business. You know, uh, most of the businesses I've been in, around a thousand people. I mean, it's, it's not hard to to know who your informal leaders are on the shop floor. It's not hard to find them after a while. Again, I've run union and non-union businesses. A little more of a challenge in the union environment to, to promote folks and move folks through, but it can be done. You just have to build that relationship with the union. Yeah, fantastic. Um, sometimes it's as simple as having conversations with these people. Um, yeah, covers, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I, I spend probably more time on the floor than most executives because I get that's the feedback I get from my team all the time. It's like you spend an awful lot of time out on the floor. <laughs> Don't you have a meeting you need to go to? Um, but that's how I learn and that's how I can coach and teach. If I'm not out there seeing it, if I'm not out there interfacing with them, then I can't help them. Um, if it could be done from the conference room or by phone, you know, I could 
call in the morning and scream and yell at everybody and go out and play 18 holes and <laughs> call in the afternoon. But it doesn't work that way. At least it doesn't for me. And I've, I've never seen it successful in any other. Incredible. Incredible. Is there anything else? So you, you talked about process discipline. I think this is really hard for some companies to get through. Number mm -hmm. one, it's might be because employees aren't motivated to do mm -hmm. that process or there's no accountability systems. Mm -hmm. Like the leaders aren't following up. Like what, what works for, for that? Well, every business that I've been in uh, involved, particularly in a turnaround, uh, I start out with five S and, and I've had some arguments with some CEOs on this. What's five S you said five, five S right. The, the five S that's um, sort set in order, shine, standardize, sustain. Mm. It's uh, straight from, from Toyota. And the idea is the first uh, S, which is sort, is get rid of the things that you don't need in the work area. Because all you're doing is walking around it. And the second one is what's left, what's needed, put it in order. And the third S is shine, meaning like new condition. And then set up and standardize things so that you keep that in place. Things like audit sheets, um, layered process audits, those kinds of things to make sure it's in place. Uh, but you don't just go out and say, okay, guys, here's 5S, go do it. You, again, you got to get engaged, engaged. you've got to teach and coach. I personally taught the 5S uh, in this business uh, with the supervisors. And it was the module that I had developed uh, back when I was with, with Danaher. Uh, but you start out there because that's where process discipline starts. My example is, uh, for those folks that have uh, been in the military in basic training, the first thing they do is they, they shave your head. Then they hand you fatigues and then they teach you how to fold your underwear, fold your socks and how to make your bed. And the reason they do that is because those are basic fundamental things that if you can't fold your underwear consistently or make your bed, maybe we shouldn't be giving you guns and bombs and things that can hurt you and other, other folks. Mm. To me, manufacturing is much the same way. If we can't keep our, our workplace organized, then we're probably not going to do real well at standard work. We're probably not going to do real well at variation reduction, et cetera, et cetera. They're what I would call higher level tools, right? So that's where process discipline starts with the workplace. And if we can manage that, the rest starts to improve morale. Who likes to walk into a dark, messy workplace? Mm. Nobody, right? But if you walk in and it's well lit, it's organized. Again, it's, it's not going to be like sitting on your couch at home. It's a, it's a manufacturing plant. But it's, it feels like a good place to be. It also helps when you bring in new people because they come in and they say, oh, this is how we work. This is who we are. It helps with regard to building credibility with our customers. When we do slip up and they come and they visit the plant and they see that it's organized and it's clean and people uh, are, are flowing product through, they walk away with confidence. And that's where process discipline starts. Again, if you, if you can't do that, then following the standard work again and again and again and again probably isn't going to happen and it, by doing that you improve morale it kind of goes back to the um hawthorne effect uh if you're familiar with with that study back uh, in the 20s right where they started to change the lighting and output improved and they decreased the lighting and output improved and they and the bottom line is they were paying attention to people right? and, and as they paid attention to people they got more engagement they got more involvement uh, we instituted a, a program, for instance, where the uh, workforce and the, the salaried and hourly are engaged in safety audits, not, not the safety committee alone, but actually where they go out and do an inspection, talk to the 
associates in that area, do they know where their exits are? Do they have any trip hazards? Does the safety stop uh, work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then we give out what we call um, reps bucks. So they can go to the local uh, uh, vending machines, et cetera, and get lunch or whatever it is they want. Or uh, they save enough bucks and they can get a shirt or they can get an umbrella, or, you know, whatever is uh, available in the store. Super smart. That's absolutely remarkable. I, I was I was interviewing someone who's launched like Kava restaurants, like hundreds of restaurants, and he believes in perfectly clean kitchens. And it's the go. same concept. It's like, if you can't keep the kitchen perfectly clean, then customers will notice, new employees will mm -hmm. notice, and it, like it trickles down to quality. Um, right. To give you an example, in the, in the rubber business, uh, most rubber uh, requires the use of what's called carbon black. It's a very messy, light powder. Mm. Uh, and it goes through a series of machines. I had them paint all the machines white. And they looked at me like, are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, if we, as we were able to do that, we improved a lot of things on the machine because now we found out when it was leaking, we found out a lot of issues. Wow. Think of, think of all the carbon black that was just going to waste. We did a similar thing in this business, which is um, my rule and my ask of the team was no sawdust on the floor. So the team looked at me and they said, you know, you realize we, we cut wood for a living, right? That's, that's <laughs> what we do. Yeah, but it shouldn't be on the floor. There's a dust collection system and it should be in there. And we shouldn't uh, have to be worried about slipping on it, breathing it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that improves morale. But it also, you get to that level, the machines are functioning better, the people are functioning better, the parts fit together. You start to pay attention to, you know, the inner layers of that onion as you, as mm. you feel it. Um, can we talk about status quo real quick? Because I found that's the hardest thing to get new businesses to realize and then even some employees, like they're like, oh, that's annoying. I have to mm -hmm. cut wood this way now instead of the way I've been doing it. And right. then you have even worse, you have the CEO who says, right. oh, we tried that already or right. blah, blah, blah. How do you deal with deal with that? Well, well two ways. One is I've, I've built up my credibility, right? As I begin to work on 5S and the place is feeling a little bit better. People are beginning to buy in because they see it makes my day better. Mm -hmm. uh, once people begin to see that it makes my job a little easier, makes my day a little bit better, they tend to come on board. The other side of that, though, is the leadership. You've got to be able to withstand the, the pushback and the criticism and then explain the why. Uh, I like to make the analogy to, uh, you know, the bull elephant that they use to, to clean the forest in, in third world countries, right? They don't run into the tree, right? They, they push on the tree and they push on the tree and pretty soon that tree's down. And the next thing you know, the whole forest is down. The area is cleared, mm -hmm. right? But it's that constant pressure and, and starting to cut off some of the alternatives, right? And you kind of corral everybody and pretty soon there's only one way to go. And that's the way that we want to go. Amazing. Steve, do you have any other blanket advice for, for operators and businesses uh, who maybe are on slim margins or not profitable or, or anything else before we, before we leave? Sure. Uh, you know, take a look at, to your point, what, what is the bottleneck? What is the thing that's, that's hurting you the most and focus on that. Try, don't try to fix everything at once. Mm. Uh, fix the big things first, or, or as Covey would say, big rocks first, right. Uh, and, and focus on that and don't be afraid to challenge the status quo. Uh, just because we've tried it 72 times doesn't mean that we did the right thing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I, I particularly like, you know, from Colin Powell, you know, uh, challenge the experts in their own backyard. Don't be afraid to do that. That doesn't mean you have the right answer, but sometimes by doing that, you'll find the right answer with the team.
Yeah. And and uh, just to like recap everything to to find the bottleneck, I like that big bottleneck. It's harder than it sounds. You mm -hmm. find it by ways like talking to people on the floor, looking at dependencies and things like that. Or, right. or and, and when you walk the shop floor, and in this example, for instance, when you see all of the, the parts and components stacked up before the next operation, it kind of tells you that either the operation afterwards isn't capable mm. or the operation before is producing something I don't need. So why is that? Mm. Now, that's without having any real flow in place, but you can see it. Uh, in the rubber industry, for instance, we had ovens that were the size of a small bedroom to produce parts that were maybe the size of a dime. Well, wait a minute, why, why, why do I need an oven that size? And you start to be challenging the engineers and it turns out, well, back in the day, that was eight hours worth of work would fit into that machine and they would just uh, do the post curing on the second shift because that was eight hours. There was no rhyme or reason or math uh, behind it. And often you find that those things were just rules of thumb and they can be challenged and, and can be changed. And you've got to get out on the shop floor to see it. You can't see it from the office. You can't see it from the conference. Mm. Oftentimes you're tripping over it. Yeah. Right. It's right in front of you. Right. Steve, amazing interview. Trey is lucky to have you and I'm sure you'll do more turnarounds in your future, but, um, I greatly appreciate this. I'll look into some of these frameworks like the five S's and um, sure. I, you know, thank you for your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure.